Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Want a website with unmatched power, speed and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and uh, James Holland. And, well, we're taking to the air today, James. Uh, who are we talking to and what about? Well, we've got we've got a guest on today who is long overdue his uh, yeah. contribution to this podcast. Um, uh, one of our favourite um, historians um, focuses predominantly on aviation history. And really, there's no one in the world who knows more about the Battle of Britain specifically, but also planes and specifically spitfires and hurricanes you know if you want to know about this stuff he's your man he is of course andy saunders and andy it's, it's great that you've come on i'm pleased to be here and thanks very much for uh, for inviting me now andy how long have you how long have you been a um uh a, a battle of britain is is nuts the right word? Yeah, Which yeah. yeah, yeah. You'll take yeah. you'll take a you'll take a nut. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how long how long have you been been a Battle of Britain nut, and and how did you become one? Ah, oh, well, that's an interesting story. Um, God, since I since I was a teenager, really. I mean, I, I was probably the uh, the weird teenager who you know most teenagers when they made airfix kits back in the day, probably the first kit they made would have been a, a, a Spitfire or a Hurricane. Yeah, not me. You know, I built a Stuka. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> um, it was just an airplane that, that fascinated me. Uh, and building that little model airplane was something that, that triggered my interest in the Battle of Britain, really, because, you know, family came, you know, aunts and uncles and what have you came around. And I lived in, in sort of deepest rural Sussex where, you know, the Battle of Britain was being fought overhead. Um, and of course, they then started to tell me their particular stories of the, uh, of, of the Battle of Britain. And it just completely fascinated me. And then one day, uh, an uncle of mine who I knew had been badly wounded in the war, uh, in fact, in, in North Africa in the Royal Artillery, um, he looked at this little model of the Stuka and he said, oh, yeah, he said, uh, he said they were they were deadly accurate. He said, I, I'm, you know, witness living testimony to that. And in fact, he'd been badly injured. He was, um I say North Africa. Um, he, he was with a radio truck and, um, with, with four other colleagues and he was sent off from the radio truck to, to check their aerial, which is about 150 yards away. And as he's got about halfway from the truck to the aerial, he suddenly realized there was a Stuka diving down. Um, and, and it hit the, the truck, just the single bomb hit the truck, blew it to pieces. All his mates were killed. Of course, he was very badly injured. In fact, he lost pretty much the bottom of his jaw. Um, oh my god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he was very lucky to survive. And in, in fact, his survival was down largely to a, a captured, um, Africa Corps surgeon who pretty much saved his life and, and patched him up. But it was a bit of a sort of a, an awakening for me in terms of, you know, I, I'd grown up like, I, I guess, many people of my generation with, 
war comics and what have you. And suddenly, you know, my God, you know, this, uh, and I was only, I don't know, 11, 12, I don't know how old I yeah. was. Uh, and, and the realization that, you know, this, this was all, you know, this was serious stuff. This wasn't just, you know, the front covers of your uh, commando war comics or whatever. So yeah. it, 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 that sort of sparked my interest, actually, the, the building a model and people telling me stories of the Battle of Britain. That's what fascinated me. <laughs> I remember on one occasion, um, we, I went on a, on a walk one Sunday with my uh, mother and we ended up in the local churchyard, just walking around the churchyard and, there were the graves of four German airmen and she said, Oh yeah, yeah, I, I, I saw two of those shot down. And, and the whole thing just, you know, to me, it was, uh, I, I was just fascinated by the whole thing. And I, I, you know, haven't really, <laughs> I haven't looked back. Really. <laughs> haven't, you haven't let up, have you? That, that, no. That... <laughs> <laughs> and, and, um, what, what, what do you think it was about the Stuka? Because I, I mean, cause I could completely relate to this idea of it, of the second world war as an, uh, you know, as an, adv- as an adventure. And then suddenly you realize, that it ain't no adventure. It's it's very very serious. But but what was it about the Stuka? What what, what do you think? And and st- probably still is. Um, I, I, it was it's such a an unusual, ungainly looking aeroplane. I think that was one of the first things that kind of attracted me to it in an odd sort of way. Um, uh, and uh, you know, it just it just looks as though it just kind of looks wrong in terms of an aeroplane that is going to be nice to fly. And and the more you look into it, you more you realise that actually, you know, although it's um, had a, had a bad press, so to speak, in terms of its effectiveness and um, uh, and so on and so forth, it was actually a brilliant aircraft to fly, a lovely aircraft to fly. Probably, you know, not so good if you've got a bunch of Spitfires and Messer- uh, Spitfires and Hurricanes on your tail. But as an aeroplane, it was a, a, a joy to fly. And in fact, there was a um, an RAF pilot, again, going back to North Africa, uh, I can't remember what a squadron, 87 squadron possibly. Uh, and the squadron ended up with a, a captured, uh, Stuka. Uh, and he basically took this aircraft over and, and he, he used it as his personal runaround. Um, uh, and <laughs> when amazing. the, uh, yeah, it was just incredible. In fact, there were some amusing stories about it. I mean, he, he actually, uh, said what a absolutely beautiful aeroplane this was to fly bearing in mind he'd flown spitfires and hurricanes um in terms of an aeroplane to fly he said give me a stuka anytime which i thought was an interesting interesting comment but but one day uh, an amusing tale that he told me was that um the squadron were relocating along the north african coast and and the ground party were going on ahead um with with their trucks and what have you there was, uh, and he decided that as they were, they got more pilots than they had aircraft at the time, he would, he would fly the Stuka because he wasn't leaving that behind. So, um, he tags along in the Stuka and along the coast road, he, he sees the, uh, the ground column moving up to their next airfield. And, um, he thought, Oh, I've got a fun here. I'll do a practice dive bombing run on. Him. <laughs> um, the only problem with that was that there was a new officer on the squadron and nobody had told him about the the tame stuka <laughs> so this chap was determined to die like a gentleman and he he stood on the back of a truck with his sten gun and loosed off a full you know he couldn't understand why nobody was taking cover um, but luckily he was he was a bad shot but but so you know i, I think all of those things al you know just fascinated me about this yeah. airplane here's yeah. this airplane that you know, it looks ungainly. It, it, it had a bad press in terms of it, its uh, success or otherwise in the Battle of Britain. Um, but actually, 
the story of the aeroplane is is really a fascinating one. Well, it's certainly it's it's certainly got a very um, distinctive. I mean, can you say iconic? I suppose you can. It's got you know. I mean, in the same way, I the think... Spitfire is completely iconic because of its elliptical wings and its shape and all the rest of it. You, yeah, you, know, yeah. you can't mistake it. It's so distinctive, isn't it? With the, it, with the gull shaped wings and yeah, you know yeah. the undercarriage. And I remember I, I, I've seen them. They have one at the um, at the RAF Museum, but they also mm. had a they have a wrecked one at Sinsheim um, in Germany. Yeah, um, and. Uh, because I was filming there, I was able to get, you know, you're able to sort of get past the barriers and get really close and actually kind of touch it, put your finger on it and stuff. And on all the, I remember on all the exhaust stubs, you could see the Junkers symbol, which I have to say is a very cool symbol. It's a very good piece of design, the Junkers symbol. And they still have it on their wristwatches, which is what they've been reduced to now. Um, but there was something incredibly, there was something rather moving about standing there next to this wrecked, um, Stuka, which had been, I think, pulled up out of the sea somewhere. But we're still very much, although it's a wreck, it's still, large parts of it are still pretty complete. And I was lucky enough to to interview a, a Stuka pilot. And, and again, that gave me a real perspective on it because although he was quite, you know, he was quite there, but he, he, was, he was pointing out that it's it, it requires a certain amount of, um, he didn't say courage or bravery, but that was what he was implying to do these dives. Cause you know, you're starting at whatever it is, 6,000 feet pulling out at, at 1,000 or 1,500 feet or something like that. And you know, you are going it down at 80 degrees, aren't you? Pretty yeah, yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so the, your, the, your airframe is shaking, the helping screaming that the world is coming towards you. I mean, it does take a lot of guts to fly that kind of thing. Yeah, it, it did. And it certainly did. Uh, and I, I mean, you know, during the Battle of Britain, for example, um, the other thing with the, the Stuka is that in the dive bombing attack, you had to carry out the attack directly into wind. So before takeoff from from France, say, they would have a forecast and they would know roughly, you know, the wind direction at the target. But yep. They then have to fly around and look for ground signs, you know, smoke from railway engines or, you know, chimneys or whatever right. to actually get the. And so then the whole formation has got to then you know, formate and follow the leader to get into position. So what happened, for example, on the 18th of August, 1940, which was a big raid by, by Stukas, um, they, they came in over the coast, they went past their target, and they had to go around in this big arc, you know, while they were sort of working out where the wind was. And, and that was a crucial point in, in terms of the, them being attacked by, by the defenders. So, yeah, it, it took a lot of courage. And, and, I was, I always feel sorry for the, for the rear gunner. You know, the, the aircraft is, uh, is going down near enough vertically and he's looking at the sky. Uh, and as oh, one uh, Stuka pilot said to me, you know, he had no idea whether I was going to pull out or even if I was still alive. <laughs> and Andy, the process is, is you're flying along, let's say for argument's sake, 6,000 feet. Then you've got to flip over onto your back, haven't you? No, no, uh, no. No, I thought you flipped over to the back and then dived down. Isn't that how you did it? No, no, no. So, so it was. Oh, um, good. I'm glad you put me right on this. Generally, the approach to target would have been about sort of eleven thousand feet, and then um, the, the the leader of the formation would would obviously go down first, and the others would then follow in a, in a prearranged order. Um, but no, there wasn't any sort of rolling over onto the back. Um, you, you literally just pitched the nose nose forward. You extended the dive brakes. And, and say you're at 11,000 feet, you're going to dive at 80 degrees or up to 80 degrees, uh, for about 8,000 feet. 
um, and, and then you pull out. And the, there's, there's all sorts of little tricks that the aircraft had. It had a little warning horn that told the pilot when to release the bomb, when he got to the right altitude. Um, so it, it was, you know, technologically, it was actually a, a, a quite, you know, pretty advanced piece of kit. But, but certainly it took a, an awful lot of courage. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, but, uh, you know, there are, there are so many, I think the unfortunate thing about, I suppose, a lot of aircraft of the Second World War or a lot of equipment at the Second World War, there's a lot of mythology surrounding it. Mm. Well, yes. Yeah, so let's let, let that's the thing to delve into, isn't it, really? Because, I mean, the, the Stuka sort of. Um, you, you, we touched on the idea of it being iconic earlier, but certainly it's sort of emblematic of Blitzkrieg, isn't it? It's the Blitzkrieg yeah. plane, isn't it? The, and the Jericho trumpet and all it, that. Well, well, exactly. Now, um, first of all, d- d- is the Jericho trumpet really a thing, or is it a thing that's uh, dubbed onto footage? Because after all, all that footage, and um, <laughs> we're, we're we're very big fans of the cliched Second World War footage, you know the yeah, the hurricane yeah, yeah. the hurricane gun ports. Yeah, it's yeah, all yeah. silent footage, so. So any sound you ever hear on any of it is is a- added later at a sort of foley stage. Is that is because the Jericho trumpet is a thing that's argued about, isn't it? Did it exist? Is it the sound of the airplane? Let's start there. Okay. Well, did it exist? Yes and no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. I, I no, the, a, the experts answer. I should be a politician. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, certainly, um, the, the, the original concept was to have these sirens fitted to the wheel spats and they were wind driven and they were certainly used in Poland and, and some of the early parts of the, uh, the campaign in, in France and the Low Countries. But one of the th- problems with it, which was pointed out to me by one of the pilots that I, I interviewed, because I'm that old that I could interview these pilots because they were st- still around in <laughs> large numbers when I started doing this. But one of the, one of the problems was that the, the, the siren couldn't be switched off. So, um, uh, rather ah. amusingly, this, uh, uh, this, this, uh, Stuka pilot, um, chap called Malka, he said, you know, it was crazy. He said, we were bringing the, uh, bringing the air raid sirens with us because the enemy could hear us coming for miles away. <laughs> so <laughs> if, if you look at, um, aircraft that were shot down over here in, during the Battle of Britain, and, and there, there were a few, but actually not that many. Um, none of them, uh, none of them had the sirens fitted. Um, but everyone that was on the end of an attack in Britain in 1940 remembers the sirens. Um, so what, what was it they were remembering? Cause they, they, you know, this terrible howl. Well, if, if you think about it, this airplane is diving, you know, I don't know, 280 miles an hour, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and they've extended dive brakes. It, it's not an aerodynamically clean aeroplane anyway. The, the engine is, is howling its heart out. You know, the Junkers UMO 211 is, is, is revving. Um, you've got the speed of the propellers at the tip. And if, if you've ever heard of the, the Harvard T6, you know, the propellers make that, that sort of howling noise. Yeah. So you've got all that going on. You've also extended beneath the wings, you've extended, uh, um, dive brakes. Which are like sort of a cut off five bar gate. So you've got this thing coming down at, you know, a couple of hundred miles an hour, 80 degrees. Um, it's got an undercarriage that's fixed. It's all square and angular. Um, and you've got these big, literally huge bars hanging down yeah. underneath the wings. So just the noise of the slipstream going through those makes a howling noise. Additionally, 
um, a lot of the bombs that they carried had had screamers fitted to the to the fins, right. uh, sort of whistles. So, uh, but in terms of the actual sirens, no. And, and funnily enough, this was something which um, indirectly um, uh, Christopher Nolan, when he was doing the uh, the Dunkirk film, he he a, a query came through to me about the sirens and whether they had them, and I said, well, I'm pretty sure they didn't have them at Dunkirk, but ultimately. Some of them may have had, some of them may not have done, but, but he decided to leave the, the, the sirens in, yeah. um, you know, for cinematic effect, really. But hold on a minute, Andy, because you, you just name dropped Helmut Malka there. Yeah, yeah. Um, 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 so obviously I've read and, um, a, a, thought his book was fabulous and, um, I, uh, yes, I, I, I know all about him. I mean, what was he like to, to me? I mean, I'd love to have interviewed him. He's a very celebrated snooker pilot. Um, he's a Stuka pilot officer in the Blitzkrieg, the war in the West, you know, um, you know, the attack in the West. He's over at Dunkirk. He's in the, involved in the Battle of Britain. Um, you know, he's been there, done it, got the T-shirt. So he's, he's, a, he's a proper Blitzkrieg Stuka pilot. I found them all, um, the ones I interviewed and corresponded with, they were very charming, very polite. Um, but one of the things that uh, this is sort of getting into slightly awkward territory, possibly, I don't know. One of the things that I noticed about particularly the Stuka pilots was that I got a sense that they were perhaps rather more politically motivated, shall we say, than, than your average run of the mill bomber or fighter pilot. Um, I don't know that, that, that might have just been me reading too much into it all, but. That was my impression. Do you think that's because maybe because of the what we were talking about earlier, the nerve required to do it? You've got to be just that little bit more, you know, into what you're doing. To because were they volunteers or were they selected? How did it work? Uh, well, a bit of both, but but it, it, you could you could volunteer, um, but you still had to pass a very very rigorous training test, and and I think it was something like I think eighty percent of your bombs during a during the training uh, and over an extended period of time, you had to have 80% of your bombs within 25 yards or 25 meters of, of the, the practice target. And, you know, that's quite something really, but, but that actually, so that eliminated quite a lot of guys who just were not, you know, perhaps terribly accurate. Um, uh, but it, it, that also shows another thing, how, you know, the accuracy of this airplane as, as a weapon, and and if you look at the targets that were attacked in the Battle of Britain, for example, RAF Tangmere, you know, none of the bombs fell outside the airfield or outside of the the little you know concentrated area they were attacking. You attack those airfields with a with an ordinary medium bomber, um, and the air, and the bombs are going to go everywhere. You know, they're going to be half of them are going to be miles away from the airfield. So it, it was from that point of view, it's very effective. And I, and I think. Um, uh, yeah, what you were saying, Al, it could well be right in terms of their sort of... But isn't there a chicken know, and egg there, though, Andy? Is it that the plane's accurate or that they're very well trained? or is the, Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a good point. Um, and I think that the other thing, going back to, you know, just touching on their, their political motivation or otherwise, um, I think the other thing that that perhaps may have clouded my judgment somewhat somewhat is this perception that, the Stuka was very much, very much, it represents Nazi Germany, doesn't yeah. it? You know, it's, there's yeah. something about it. it it's yeah. appearance, it's threatening, just the name is kind of threatening. Um, yeah. and, and maybe all that plays across, you know, you get this, um, 
the, the perception that this is a, 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 a very much a Nazi piece of kit. Yes, it's sort of swastika um, plane, isn't it? Well, and also, and Victoria yeah. Taylor's done all this work, hasn't she, on the kind of on the Nazification of the Luftwaffe? And, yeah, yeah, uh, and um, done some excellent new research on that. And you know, it was quite politicised, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it yeah. really, really was. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've only got to read the beginning of Heinz Nocker's diary, and you realise <laughs> that he was absolutely gunned for. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that, that intrigued me going back into the seventies, the I, I actually went to quite a few Luftwaffe reunions in, um, in Germany. Um, and, you know, to interview people. And, um, the, the first thing that they always said to me, um, that these guys without me asking, and I wasn't at all interested because I just wanted their stories. The first thing they said was, of course, you know, I was never a Nazi. Um, <laughs> And, of course you weren't. Uh, absolutely. And there was one in particular who insisted that he was, uh, he was not a Nazi. I shan't mention his name. He wasn't a stupid pilot, actually. Uh, and after he died, he said, no, I was never a Nazi, never a member of the party. When he died, his family contacted me to say, oh, we've got all these things you might like, you know, I'm going to send them over. And of course, there was his Nazi party badge with the number and his, yeah. the certificate of joining, you know, and he was actually a very early member. So there was this <laughs> denial of, of, you know, involvement and participation. But yeah, Victoria Taylor has done some brilliant work on the, uh, the Nazification of the Luftwaffe. And I think, um, you know, there is this kind of perception that the Luftwaffe, you know, almost like the, the Kriegsmarine to a, to a degree, it was sort of clean, as it were. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think it, it's very I dangerous mean, to assume that. Yeah. I mean, given, given who it, given who its patron was and given, <laughs> g- g- I mean, and given that aviation was very tightly associated with sort of, modernity and i you know fascist ideas like that anyway it it, it seems it seems it's, it's a stretch isn't it and get also given yeah. how nazified germany was it's a stretch that there would be a major institution with yeah. hermann Goering as its patron that was somehow immune <laughs> to all that um uh, uh, andy the, the 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 thing about the stuka the sort of you know the 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 sort of schoolboy guide is it, it, version of is is it's very effective in 1940 and then it's found wanting during the battle of britain and during during the Battle of Britain, sort of is is withdrawn from um, uh, use because it's too vulnerable. Well, about ten days into the battle, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but twenty like fourth of August. But but, like but that, that 23rd, but, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean the end of the story for the Stuka at all because it because it, fe- no. it features hugely in Barbarossa, doesn't it? It does. No, it wasn't the end of the, uh, the Stuka and the Mediterranean story. and yeah. Malta yeah, yeah, all and over, Greece yeah. and yeah, yeah. Balkans. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. No, no, it, uh, quite. You're quite right. You know, it, it carried on, and I mean, it was still being built up until. September, October 44. But going back to your point about it being withdrawn from the Battle of Britain um, because of losses, um, <laughs> I, I have a bit of an issue with that because it, it wasn't quite like that. They, they did suffer enormous losses on the um, particularly on the 16th and the 18th of August, and then they sort of disappear from the battle. Um, but, it, but it wasn't due to unacceptable losses. It, it was more to do with what was going on in the bigger picture. And the bigger picture was that coming towards the end of August, there were evidently, you know, preparations for some sort of cross-channel invasion. Um, and most of the Stuka force were actually operating at that time down in the Cherbourg area. So they, they were attacking targets in West Sussex, you know, Hampshire, Isle of Wight, Dorset, so on and so forth. So the plan was to move them all up to the Pas de Calais because the Stuka had already been proven as a very, very effective ship killer. And with the Kriegsmarine having lost so many ships in uh, in 
uh, in Norway, uh, there was a realization that the only thing that they got really to deal with to uh, Britain's ships that would be interfering with any invasion attempt was the Stuka. So they were all moved lock, stock and barrel um, on about the 20th of August up to the Pas de Calais area. And by the time they got settled, um, and there, there was certainly a degree of let's husband their resources because we need to keep these for the for the invasion. Um, but but there, there was there was other things going on in the back. The Luftwaffe now were changing their tactics. We we were now moving away from airfield attacks, which is primarily what the Stukas have been doing, and uh, and also attacking RAF infrastructure such as the radar stations. That was all stopping by early September, 7th of September. Yep, 7th of September was when they changed, changed tack. But, exactly. but, but they come out of the battle kind of 12 days before that because they, they come out of they're, 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 they They no longer are operating from about the 24th, if I remember rightly, off the top of my head. Of yeah, yeah, so, something like that. Um, so, it, yes, they, they've come out of the battle, but um, it, was, it was intended that it was only a temporary thing. And their losses, the, the total losses of Stukas, out of a force of, I think it was, how many did they have? Something like 300 odd Stukas at the beginning of Battle of Britain. Um, I mean, they lost 52 in total. Um, but if you look at that against the, the number of other bombers and, and fighters that the Luftwaffe lost, you know, it, it wasn't a, a high percentage in, in a way of the, uh, of the total force. And what's really interesting is that within two or three days of the huge losses on the, 18th of August, those losses had been made good with aircraft and aircrew and the, the units were back up to full strength again. Um, obviously that couldn't keep going on ad infinitum. So the, as I say, there was a degree of sort of husbandry going on and let's, you know, <laughs> let's, let's, uh, preserve air, air forces, but it, it wasn't as simple as they were withdrawn because of accept, but, unacceptable but, losses. But, but Andy, the big problem is, is you don't really want to be using, um, Stukas when you haven't got Air superiority, because the whole point about low-level bombing is that it's low-level, um, and that makes you incredibly vulnerable. And the Stuka particularly so, because as it comes out of its dive, it's you know it's it, it's not quite stationary, but I mean you know it's not going fast. So if you are a hurricane or Spitfire hovering above, you're you're, you're pretty easy meet at that point. And the problem is, is is you know the Stuka is excellent when you've already destroyed the Polish air force and when you've destroyed destroyed the 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 Dutch and Belgian air force and it's not a problem because or, or when you've got swarms and swarms of overwhelming numbers of Messerschmitts of both types over above you then great and it's also very good on a fixed target as well i mean it is effective against shipping but it is incredibly difficult to hit a moving ship you know because obviously when you're starting your diver as you say 11,000 feet you know a ship looks like a pencil um uh, and it's moving around and it's zigzagging and it's not keeping still and actually what's amazing is if you look at all those um accounts of people coming back from dunkirk they sort of they all say well, you know, suddenly these Stukas came over and I thought that was it. I was a goner and these huge fountains of spray of water going a thousand feet into the air. And, you know, and um, but, you know, thankfully we managed to get through it. And that's, of course, because obviously a moving ship crossing the channel from Dunkirk, it's quite easy to get within kind of, you know, a couple of hundred yards of it or something. But it's very difficult to actually hit it. And that's why I think only something like 30 ships out of the 270 or whatever there were 233 that were sunk on dunk and the dunkirk evacuation were actually sunk um at sea by the air the rest of them were kind of i mean something like something like 175 were due to misadventure weren't they of people overcrowding on the little ships and they're just sinking so it wasn't very many and i think it was only nine royal navy ships were were sunk that's sort of by the by but the point the point is that 
when you've got a nice big juicy target like a like a single road or or a factory and you've got complete command of the airspace then obviously dive bombing is is great because it means you can be really accurate if you're really accurate you need less ordnance to do the damage which thereby in turn means you need less aircraft to 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 do the damage so you know what's not to like the the, the problem with the with the dive bombing policy is they then get carried away the stuka's terrific but then they go well hang on a minute you know this really fast long-range medium bomber the ju-88 let's have let's have dive bombing with that and then absurdly they then say actually you know we're developing this new four-engine bomber the heinkel 177 let's give dive bombing capabilities to that as well and obviously it doesn't you know it doesn't take an aviation um engineer to tell you that putting dive bombing capabilities on a heavy bomber is not not a really good idea and they so you see in the the luftwaffe um general off this sort of they get consumed by their obsession with dive bombing at the expense of you know obviously what you need is a combination you need you need your stukas for 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 jobs that are specifically suited for stukas yeah but you don't want them a part of your strategic air force i would argue well yeah i mean part of the problem with the the stuka in the battle of britain for example was that it was you know it was a tactical weapon that they were trying to use for a strategic objective right yeah, um, so it's the wrong role for it. That's yeah, the point. Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. so one of the reasons for withdrawing it, I'm sure, it's also because it wasn't suited to that to that role. Yeah, it's yeah, suited yeah. to attacking an airfield when you've got lots of lots of aircraft sitting waiting on the ground and you've got yeah, lots yeah. of Messerschmitts overhead. But if you haven't got that those conditions, then it's a bit of a waste of space. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the, the ships, and you're absolutely right about the difficulty of hitting a, a narrow ship. But one of the things that the, the Germans did, and they, they learned this quite rapidly, was that the, um, they, they, they fused, they, they ended up fusing some of their bombs in such a way that they would not explode on impact with the water. So if you missed the ship, the bomb would usually explode just, you know, on impact with the water. But they'd altered the fuses so that they would actually explode just underneath the water. So then you get like a depth charge effect. So you can have a near miss and sink a ship with a Stuka. Um, and, and the other thing that, that you need to sort of bear in mind is if, if you've got a really good pilot and he's, he's coming down on, on a ship, um, you know, the, between the bomb release and the, well, between the bottom of the dive and the, and the, the bomb hitting the target is something like five seconds, just under five seconds. But in five seconds, you, you know, the, the helmsman isn't gonna, he's not gonna have chance to, to move the ship. So, you've got a fairly good chance of getting close to it. So the Germans quickly learned that you don't have to actually hit these ships to sink them. And there were quite a few that were sunk in convoys that just had their plates buckled below the, below the waterline because the, the bombs didn't hit them, but it sunk them. And so, uh, so, so redeploying Stukas to shipping is, is to, is to bring, bring them into tactical alignment with what they can do rather than, rather than expending them on airfields or whatever or RDF sites. Yeah. As, yeah, yeah. Um, but but in, well, in, airfields and RDF sites are, are, are fine as long as you haven't got lots of Spitfires and Hurricanes overhead when you're doing it. That, yeah. that, that's the that's the real issue. The Stuka is really good when you've got control of the skies over which you're operating. Yeah. And that's yeah. the same principle about in reverse for the Allies before D-Day. That's why they need to have clear the skies of the Luftwaffe in the run-up to D-Day, so that they can attack these low-level, bri- you know, attack bridges, marshalling guards, all the rest of it. It requires low-level attacks, but you can't do effective low-level attacks when you don't command the skies because you're very, you're too vulnerable. We need to take a quick break right now. We'll be back in a second.
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Uh, James and I are talking to Andy Saunders about the Stuka. Andy, you said they go on manufacture them until 1944. So, so what shift is there in the in the role, or does it does it essentially? I mean, obviously, they're, they're, as you've said, they're learning and they're developing, and of course they are. But what what does it? Where does it end up by? 1944, what's its role? Is it essentially doing the same thing or is it sort of... Yeah, yeah, essentially um, a a ground attack. Um, You know, they also had, um, you know, tank busting ones, you know, with these big cannons hanging underneath the wings. So, yeah, it it, it was thrown at whatever, you know, whatever it could be used for, you know, primarily on on the Eastern Front. But then um, after the invasion of, uh, of Europe in 44, they, they were used. I mean, incredibly, they were using them at night as well against the against Allied forces. Um, uh, and in fact, talking about using them at night, uh, it's an interesting um, little aspect of the Stuka story is that very few people realize that the Stuka was also incredibly used at night over London in the Blitz. Um, yeah. Um, on very few occasions, but it was used, and it wasn't used in a dive bombing capacity. It was just, you know, let's send a few more aeroplanes, and the Stuka can carry a bomb. So, you know, we just use it to chuck a bomb at London. Um, but yeah, yeah, they were they were used at night over London. Um, they were back in the fray on the Channel coast by November 1940. Attack again, attacking shipping, um, and that carried on until January, February 41. So, you know, the Stuka came back in effect um, at, at the end of the year. But, um, yeah, uh, uh, the, the, their role on uh, later on in the war was, was certainly, yeah, it was varied, um, but it was primarily, you, you know, the, the Eastern Front was the, 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 
the big place where it was used. And of course you had, uh, Rudel, who was the, uh, the big, you know, tank killer ace with 250 kills or something. And, and again, coming back to the political side, he, he was also, um, he was definitely, um, of a certain political persuasion, shall we say, which is why, um, at the end of the war, he wasn't enjoyed, uh, invited to join the, uh, the new Luftwaffe. Oh, really? Ah. Well, he's, he was rather too committed. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think he was uh, faithful to the uh, to his dying breath. I remember the guy I interviewed as a chap called, he was an Austrian sticker pilot called Karl Spreitzer. He was a charming, charming fellow. <laughs> was. We, didn't, we didn't get into politics at all, I have to admit. But um, I remember he, you know, he was he joined the, you know, the Austrian Air Force before the Anschluss and then got transferred over to the over to the Luftwaffe and was there, you know, on the 1st of September going into Poland. Um but I remember talking to him about his about his first flight in a Stuka and saying, you know, well, you know, what did you have? He said, well, I had an instructor in the back and, you know, I just did what I was told. And he said, I felt really sick. My stomach came into my mouth. And, and uh, you know, he said, I have to say, I did feel a bit anxious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? That yeah. understatement of the century. Yeah, yeah. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but you know your, your experience of in saying that he was a, a charming guy. You know, I, I, that's what I found with the ones that I interviewed. Um, although I do remember remember telling my mother that I'd interviewed a Stuka pilot, and I, I I said, you know, he was a lovely guy. And of course, you know, she had a slightly different view of things, having been on the end of. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got to say, my experience of meeting Luftwaffe veterans is they are mostly charming. I, I, I'm not sure I could put Higher Herman in that camp, but. Um... He was, he was, I wouldn't say charm was the right word. Terrifying was another. (laughs) (laughs) Those eyes, those eyes, they bore into your soul. (laughs) It was quite unnerving. (laughs) But, but it's, it's, it's amazing. I always felt, felt that they just, with dive bombing in those early parts, you know, just before the war, the sort of, the, the, the sort of axis of, Udet and Yashonik, I, I kind of felt that they, they slightly kind of over overkilled the, the whole dive bombing strategy. You know, they obviously sort of cottoned onto this idea, this, isn't this a great, great wheeze, but then sort of got too carried away and sort of not appreciating that the Stuka in itself is a, is a fabulous dive bomber, but is, is suited to a very specific. But if you're short, it really is. If you're short of stuff, Jim, like they are, then of course you're looking for ways to, to bomb accurately and. You, you, yes, you know. but but you're you, of course you are, but but you're but but you're you're trying to push the impossible with a heavy bomber like the Heimlich yeah, one seven seven. Yeah, of course you are, but but you're also you, you're not going to be able to make as many as the other side. So I, I'm not saying I get it, but I can see I can see how you might end up in that. Heading yeah, I can that, see how you get something in that, in that well, direction. But, but I think that's what know. they you know. But that is what happens. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, uh, how many? How many Stukas are built in the end? Is it? Is it? Is it? It's in the thousands, yeah. isn't it? It was about six thousand. Yeah. Right. Gosh. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so and, few left. Uh, well, to the best of my knowledge, there's. I think. Well, the, the, there are no very early versions of the the Stuka, apart from one that's being rebuilt in. Um, yes, in, the States. in Germany. Oh, there's one in Germany that's been. Oh, is there? Well. Okay. Yeah. Um, is that a B? One of the early a B versions. So. Well, yeah. I don't know, but it's only because I met. I met. I met some guy. He's a British engineer who's who's been hiked over to Germany by some German owner, and it's definitely being restored. This was I was talking to him. I guess I you know maybe pre-COVID twenty nineteen. I'd say <laughs> I was talking to him about it. 
the idea of a Stuka being built in Germany is slightly chilling, but there we go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but, it, but it absolutely was. That's what he was saying, and he was yeah, talking yeah. about it. But. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's, there's very few left, and, and um, there's one in the uh, RF Museum collection, of course, but that's a, a later version. That's the D. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, that, that was pulled out in the late 60s, and, and the intention was to uh, have it take part in the Battle of Britain film. And they actually got the thing running. I've got photographs of it, you know, running. And, and in the end, they, they abandoned the idea. Right. But, what, just too risky? Not, not, not. I, I don't know the full story, but I, I guess it probably was regarded as too risky. Um, and then, uh, then they did this weird thing where they, they built a, um, or rebuilt a Percival Proctor, uh, to make it look like a Stuka. And they called it a Proctuka. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and the pilot apparently refused to fly it. He said, look, you know, it's like, I do realise that in the film you want to portray stupids with their wings coming off, and I can tell you that if I fly this, the wings are coming off. That'll happen, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so they have the rather unconvincing model, don't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stokers! I mean, the, the, yeah. The, yes, a terribly unconvincing model. I mean, the... the, the I mean, big squares of turf coming up in mean, the I mean, the, 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 the Stukas sort of... I mean, it, it is interesting because we are. To, I mean, we've said iconic several times. Where does it fit in sort of German propaganda law, um, L-O-R-E law um, uh, uh, during the war? Does it become a focus of sort of attention and? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there was even the, the Stuka song. Um, you know, I don't know the words, thankfully, and I'm not going to sing them. I suppose I could, and Al could drum along to it or something. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, uh, it's a, it's a very weird uh, song, and, it, and there was also propaganda films made that were just called Stuka, right? Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was very much, you know, the, the the propaganda machine in Germany very much latched onto the Stuka as a, you know, because it it it, it just lent itself to to propaganda, didn't yeah. it? Really, I mean, in a, in a sort of peculiar way, it's sort of that thing of the Germans getting off to a good start. And then never being able to quite move on from the, from that start. The fact that it's still around in 44, I think is absolutely, and, and obviously to the end of the war is absolutely fascinating that they're still building it. Given the things they're trying to do technologically elsewhere, you know, that at the same time you've ME262s being perfected at that same moment. Some of the th- sort of decisions they've arrived, conclusions they've arrived at by 1940, they're still hanging on to when they're probably of limited tactical uh, value, but b- by the end of the war. It's fascinating. It's sort of emblematic of that. I mean, it's so emblematic of Blitzkrieg. It really, I mean, it, you know, it's little wonder they made great play of it themselves, the Germans, but it sort of sits in the mind as the Blitzkrieg playing, really. Yeah, t- totally. It, it is. It just epitomises the Blitzkrieg, doesn't it? And, Andy, you know, people want to be Spitfire pilots when they join the RAF or they want to be a fighter pilot. So, I mean, where do, where do people, where does the Stuka sit within the Luftwaffe in terms of, you know, kudos and... Um, oh, I think it was very Pretty much, high? Yeah, yeah. I think it was very much up there, yeah. Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, I, I that's my feeling. I, I can't, you know, emphatically say that that was the case, but I, I'm pretty sure it, it was that... You know, being a stupid pilot was, you know, quite something. Yeah, yeah. Was yeah, you're 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 cool, I suppose, if you're flying, for want of a better word. 
Mm. And did you did you ever meet any pilots that had flown over Malta? Because I always think that must have been, as a Stuka pilot, that must have been absolutely terrifying. I mean, I know it's sort of when you're in the when you're Maltese, you're you're you're, you're thinking the the Luftwaffe hold all the aces because they're attacking you every single day. But the kind of all those box barrages around Grand Harbour and Luca and Tikali, it must have been absolutely fearsome flying yeah, into that. No, I, I didn't. Uh, I, I never met or interviewed anybody who was a. Um, a Stuka pilot in, in the, in Malta or on uh, attacking Malta, sadly. Um, you know, right from the very outset, my, my focus was very sort of 1940 oriented, yeah, yeah. but, um, so I, I tended to ignore other aspects of it, which is a shame because there were a lot of people around at that time that I could have spoken to and I didn't because they were outside my field of interest. But there we go. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a regret I have daily. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. Why did I come to this in 2001? I mean, yeah. Andy, how many, how many Luftwaffe guys are left? I, I, funny enough, I had this conversation with someone the other day, and uh, it's very, very few. I, I don't, as far as I'm aware, well, I'm told that there are no survivors um, from the Battle of Britain period. No. But I, I don't know There's only one. It's, it's, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Paddy Hemingway. He's a... Uh, uh, yeah, sorry. No, I'm talking, I'm talking on the German side. Yeah, but yeah, but, yeah. but the, the only pilot that is still yeah, yeah. around so, of so, the Battle of Britain is yeah. that Irishman. Paddy Hemingway, um, yeah. and, and he was 103 yesterday, you know, incredibly. Um, and um, you know, the bizarre thing about dear old Paddy is that for, for years, everybody, the Battle of Britain Fighter Association, everyone had lost track of him, and the assumption was that he died. Um, and, and years later, he turns up, and now he's the only one <laughs> that's known to, be, known to be living. But on the German side... Um, I'm sure there probably are some air crew that are still around, but, you know, knowing who they are and where they are is, is a difficult thing. But, um, generally, I, I mean, the only people that survived the Battle of Britain, well, the only Battle of Britain Luftwaffe air crew, largely, who, who survived the war were those who ended up being taken prisoner of war here in 1940, um, or, or 41, because, you know, your chance to survival going on through the war were, were pretty slim. You know, you, if, if you survive the Battle of Britain, you're not going to get to May 45, probably. No, 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 no. And that's, that's very much, you get that, don't you? That, that sense of resignation and weariness from, from people like Mackie Steinhoff and yeah. others who kind of still going strong in 1944, just about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Andy, you're, you, you've a book strategically play, or tactically, oh, yeah, is it yeah. strategic or tactical placement of that? Oh, no, 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 yeah, 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 product <laughs> placement going on there. <laughs> um, should, should anyone want to, to, to read about the Stuka in the Battle of Britain? Stuka Attack is the name of your book. And um, the thing I was struck by is, is that picture of the great big line of them flying together, in, 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 hmm. deploying in en masse. Yeah. That's very much, that, that's very much how they'd arrive, arrive, over wherever you were, wasn't it? You know, the, the, yeah, the, yeah. they'd show um, up in force. Yeah. I, I mean, the big August attack on uh, Thorny Island, there were 109 of them. Um, what? It, wow. Yeah, yeah I mean, they, they all split off into different groups, but there were 109. Then they were covered by, there was almost, I think it was something like, um, you know, five fighters per, I mean, it was just a most enormous armada. Um, uh, but... The, very briefly, their, their survivability is also uh, interesting when you look at the different groups that were involved that day. And there was one particular group and they, they decided that, or the, the, the commander of that group said, look, 
you know, the way we're approaching these targets, uh, the run into target, um, he said is completely wrong. He said because they were flying in formations where the the um, the leader was at the lowest position and then all the others were stepped up behind. Well, you've only got a rear gunner. So, you know, you, you, you're not going to if somebody's going to be attacking you, you, you haven't got any way to really defend against them. So he said, right, what we'll do, he said, we I will fly at that position um, and then everyone I'll be at the top and everyone is stepped down behind. Uh, and that means that the rear gunner has got a clear field. And interestingly, you know, his unit in the Battle of Britain uh, on, on that particular day, they, they only took two casualties, whereas the others were taking, you know, a dozen, six, eight, whatever. Anyway, that's just an, an aside. But, yeah, the, 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 the whole spectacle of a, a sky full of um, stupors coming towards you would have been pretty um, terrifying. Yeah, it would have been amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Terrifying, yeah. Totally. Well, that's, that's been fascinating. Yes, thank you I so much. Know, I didn't know that about the Jericho Tumpet, and I didn't know about the, the bombs coming under the water and exploding like depth charges either. That's just two things that I've learned today, which is fantastic. <laughs> really is so thank you pleased to be of service oh no, yeah, no, well, no. Thank, you. thank you so much for joining us um uh we'll, we'll have to have you back um to work yes to, there's plenty to more through the about. rest of the ref and the love well, um, inventory night, night fighters and <laughs> battle britain yeah. And, yeah. oh we've got, we got we've got to talk about dowding and his dispatch interestingly yes. just, a, just yes. as a final aside dowding said in his dispatch that when the stukas came over very often uh, the entire formation was annihilated. And actually, that is complete and utter rubbish. You know, I mean, I don't know where he got that from, but anyway, <laughs> there we go. So we've got to talk about that. We do need to talk about the dispatch. Yes, we do. Yeah. 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 Yes, Fascinating book, that. Anyway, um, thanks everyone for listening. We've been talking to Andy Saunders. Yep. We will see you all again really soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.